this is our dear friend whom we've been talking about now for quite some time. Uh, we've, oh, yeah. It's been, we've been laying runway, bro, for you to show up here <laughs> this morning. Um, Rigby has come halfway across the world to be with us here today. And it just so happens that he also will be meeting with some other people in, L- in L.A. But this was his Paul yearning to come to Asia, right, to preach the gospel in Asia. is like Rigby yearning to come and preach in Sacramento. Close. <laughs> it's close. Um, but we're just incredibly grateful. Uh, he's been a longtime friend. Um, he's part of the broader partnership that, that Capital City Church has joined to for the sake of the gospel. The name of that partnership for identification purposes is called Advance but it's like-minded men, women, churches who are sowing all that we have and our resources to seeing the gospel advanced. Um, so we're just incredibly thankful that you took the time to be with us here today. We're sorry that Sue, his lovely wife, couldn't join, but, but they have promised to, he's promised to come back again and to bring her with. So um, I'm going to turn it over to you, but if you would just greet us from South Africa, bro, sure. and uh, Common Ground Church as well. Yes. We love you. Thank you very much, uh, Matt, and uh, I do want to bring you a fantastic uh, greeting from obviously the second best church on the planet. (laughs) Um, uh, I've read Dale Carnegie's book on how to win friends and influence people. Uh, I do bring you very, very warm uh, greetings from Common Ground Church uh, in Cape Town on the sort of tip of Africa. It's that uh, very unusual kind of mix of uh, first and third world. It's, uh, it's a very multicultural kind of a city. It's a significant city uh, in, in South Africa and on the continent of Africa. And somehow in the sovereignty of God, uh, my wife and I were called to lead a church 23 years ago, this coming 1st of February. Uh, that was about 40 to 50 people. That church has evolved in, in quite a remarkable story that's got very little to do with us. It's got to do with the sovereignty of God. It's got to do with the intentions of Christ. God is not backing off from the world. It's a common ground in the last 10 years. has reproduced itself 10 times. So we've got 10, we're now 10 congregations and our 11th congregation is coming up. I'm not selling any success stories. I have no uh, uh, desire to want to give you some kind of spiritual silver bullet. Uh, but I do want to make my goal for all of us this morning absolutely clear. I am on a f- full frontal mission to see our confidence in the power of the gospel for our generation to be restored. I want us to experience a fresh surge of ambition for the range of the gospel. That the gospel, if it could get to you, oh my dear, what a miracle. Just look in the mirror. If it could get to you, then there's hope for the world. If God could reach you, I mean, I am staying with some of the most wicked made new people in, in Sacramento. And I just look at them and I think, oh, my dear. And we've had meals with the Modernist family uh, over the last 24 hours and uh, walked the streets with Matt in your city. And I share his love for this great city of Sacramento. And I really do believe God wants to restore to us that sense of affording address. Yeah. 
in the gospel. You and I are not the last frontier of the gospel. And so I feel like the Lord also wants to restore our ambition to uh, see this message of scandalous grace splashed on the world in a way that is miraculous and beautiful. And I speak to you from a story that is very much in process, but my wife and I spend a lot of time giggling and laughing at just the ridiculous nature of how simply believing the gospel, putting our lives on the line, and spending our lives in a direction that says God is worthy of more glory in our moment of history. And dear friends, we're living in the most narcissistic uh, uh, period in history. I don't have a, uh, a sort of a, a judgmental view of culture. I, I see how I have compassion because I see how messed up our world is be- becoming. And if you know anything about Greek mythology, narcissist looks into the water, sees the shadow or the reflection of himself and falls in and drowns. That's the, that's the cul-de-sac. That's the end game. That's the, where it's all heading, despair, meaninglessness. We're in a culture that celebrates individualism. It's celebrating uh, 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 the, the, the quest for freedom, self-autonomy, self-sovereignty, this thing of freedom. We've got freedom tanks that are getting fuller and fuller, and we've got meaning tanks getting emptier and emptier, and it's only in the gospel that you get both freedom and meaning coming together in the most beautiful way. Let me say, if you're new to church, uh, sort of having another go at church, then I want to say to you, this is a good community to, to track with and just take some, some uh, small steps and be on the journey with us because none of us have arrived. We, uh, we, 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 we love the reality that we're continually experiencing, the wonderful reality of God's grace. The fact that God has found a way to bind wicked people like us to himself forever through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. It is ridiculous. I sat in worship today and just felt my all gates opening up again. And just those songs you sing are so beautiful. I, I just felt this wave upon wave of God's beautiful, beautiful love just renewing my own heart. But then I do need to aim a little higher this morning and just remind you of... Uh, the fact that South Africa are the World Cup rugby champions. Some of you are saying, what's rugby? Now let me just, just remember this, guys. You're the only country in the world that has the World Series inside its own boundaries. We at least went to Japan and competed with 20 other nations that had to compete, and we've had just one of the most wonderful weekends in our history. See, it's not about just winning sports. It's actually about rebuilding hope in a, in a sort of a broken culture back home. So we're so thankful because the majority of our national rugby team are wonderful born-again Christ followers, and the captain of our team, Sia Kulisi, a wonderful uh, black Christ follower in South Africa, we use those terms, black colored. It's, it's acceptable because people self-identify. We understand it's a little different maybe here. So if I say anything wrong, uh, feel free to excommunicate me. <laughs> but um, he's just such a, it's just a beautiful story of a guy who grew, grew, grew up in a township without any hope, without any 
uh, opportunity and uh, how just one talent scout saw him playing in a township on a dusty thing without any football boots. He didn't know where his next meal was coming. Got a scholarship to a school. And little by little, he emerged in the rugby world, and he now holds that, that trophy. And we were, we were voted, we not just the champions, we were voted the best team of the year, the best coach of the year. Can you see I'm a little bit like... <laughs> cool. It's a lot of comfort if you're a Manchester United supporter, and then at least you, you get your support from that other thing. Oh, sorry, I saw a few guys... Bruised and battered from the recent results. So I hear a lot of people asking this question, does the church have a future in this kind of seemingly post-Christian world? Does the church have a future? I want to turn that question around. I want to ask the question is, does the future have a church? And I'm standing in front of you to say, yes, it does. Because the day the future does not have a church is the day that Jesus Christ has fallen out of heaven. But he rose again gloriously on the third day, ascended into the heavens, and his fullness ultimately will fill everything in every way. Last verse of Ephesians chapter 1. And his church is a vehicle for that fullness. The question is not, does the church have a future? It's does the future have a church, and what is that church like? Another version of that is, does your church have a mission? And a better question will be, does the mission of Jesus have your church? And what does that look like? And I want to take you on a little journey in uh, Acts chapter 16. I want us, us together to, to discover the beauty, the wonder of, uh, of a church that is born of the gospel what it looks like. And I think it'll be instructive to us. It'll be really refreshing and renewing. So will you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Acts? About uh, 11, 12 years ago, I was reading through the book of Acts, and I do this regularly, and got to Acts chapter 5 and verse 28. Are you familiar with that that, uh, scene where uh, Peter and John are put into prison, and the Pharisees accuse them. And, of course, uh, they were forbidden to go and preach, and the angel opens the prison doors, and they go walkabouts, and everybody wonders, how did they get out? They're back in the synagogue, fearlessly preaching. And uh, when they stand before these Pharisees, they say, didn't we forbid you to preach in his name? Now you have filled the city with your message. I saw that, I underlined it. I said, okay, I found something I want to put on my tombstone. Ruby Wallace and Sue Wallace, we lived and died to fill the city of Cape Town with the life message and flame of Jesus. And we started to believe that it's possible to be part of a a, a community of ordinary people encountering the supernatural, extraordinary grace. And, uh, And the rest is history, and we're continuing to be in faith for, uh, for more and more congregations, we're not building a brand. You see, that's when, when we want to fill the, mess- the city with a message, you can't be building a brand. You've got to be multiplying a message. It's instructive. And uh, that, that reality of being calibrated in that direction is, is what's really got a hold of our hearts. 
And so in Acts chapter 16, uh, we read this amazing story from verse 6. It says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Just pause a bit. Have you ever read that and wondered what is going on here? Jesus said, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit was to take you to places that had never heard the gospel. And now we're reading this thing, and they went through the region of these regions, and the Holy Spirit forbade them. Come on, Holy Spirit. You, you know, have you forgotten what the, what the mandate is? You gave your church. Okay, let's read on. And when they'd come to uh, Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. These are like interesting verses, aren't they? We're supposed to be getting on with the job, and then God himself becomes the roadblock uh, in a very general sense. They're moving sort of north and east in their mission. And it's like the Holy Spirit is, is interrupting and says, I want to I give you a fresh direction. And so we say, we read on, it says, So passing by Marcia, or Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediate, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, which is west, which is the trajectory of how the gospel exploded into Western Europe and probably the reason why many of us are in the room today because they were forbidden from going east, and the gospel movement started to go more west. Not exclusively, but that's interesting side commentary. And, uh, and their conclusion from this vision is that God had called them to preach the gospel in Macedonia. So setting sail from Troas, verse 11, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the Dash district of Macedonia, we could have said, to Sacramento, which is the best, most beautiful, most cutting-edge capital city of California. Huh? Maybe I'm exaggerating just a little bit, but uh, I think it's a pretty cool city. I just love the little walk I had today. I mean, I got attacked by some of the best coffee that you can have on planet Earth in Sacramento. It was amazing. And then it says, uh, and, and isn't it interesting, if you track Paul through the book of Acts, he, he goes through lots of towns and villages, but he camps for longer periods in influential cities. As Tim Keller says, is that the influence of culture flows from cities, urban centers, down to uh, 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 towns and villages. The flow of culture is from influential cities. You guys need to understand that being a church in this uh, uh, great city has fantastic opportunities and it's worth putting your shoulders back and think, you know, aren't you glad you, you're not in Arkansas? <laughs> is that bad? Did I just, I'm in trouble already? I haven't even started. Okay. I'm just knowing that it takes 10 years to get an invite again, so I'm just going to move on. <laughs> And then we read, and then they come to this great city of Philippi, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. 
One who heard, who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, east, the one that they wanted to go to. A seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Uh, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Conversion story number one. And what we're going to look at today is we're going to see how three powerful conversions, three different individuals in a thousand lifetimes would never have found themselves, found themselves together, are brought together by this message, by this uh, red carpet of grace that gets rolled out as Paul ministers there and Silas later on in the chapter. And so it's conversion number two. As they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged him into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought uh, them out to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Wow. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely, having received this order. He put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Conversion number two. And then quickly this last conversion, which is the, the one that is, that is just absolutely amazing. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke, and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, you, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And then we just go right down to verse 40. Uh, verse 40. And so they went out of prison and visited Lydia, where they started. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Wow. But churches get renewed when conversion stories 
begin to be experienced in a fresh way. As a matter of fact, churches get born. And it is the normal story of the book of Acts that we should have a confidence in the gospel's power to save people and also revitalize the church and save people to be, to be living lives that are more and more animated by this power of the risen Christ, this message of uh, too good to be true grace. I want us to track the stories of these three conversions and just see how remarkable they are. Lydia, who's from Thyatira, she's like a fashion executive here. She's worked, she's got an office in Sacramento, but uh, yeah, that's her working thing. She's in Philippi, she's working there, but she's probably got a, uh, you know, her permanent home is down in San Francisco near the beach. When she eats out, she's eating at like fine dining restaurants and drinking Dom Perignon champagne with her meals and lobsters and oysters and all of that. And uh, yeah, she's living this remarkably high life. She's Asian. She's from Asia Minor. She's Asian. And then the slave girl, interesting, is, uh, is she's, she's Greek. Uh, she's incredibly poor and she's exploited by these pimps on the outside and these demonic powers on the inside. Uh, she is living a kind of an exploited, despairing life. And uh, she's had a particularly good day in reading people's fortunes. Uh, she, she, she got to go to McDonald's, the equivalent of, and maybe bottomless Coke or something like that. But then G.I. Joe, the jailer, is the guy who, after serving the uh, several military campaigns in the Roman military, his reward for all the, the, the ground taken for the Roman Empire, he gets given in a Roman colony, his own prison that he kind of uh, you know, functions through a downline of other, uh, you know, ex-Marines, and they, they, they do this stuff. Interesting. All the cushy jobs went to the Romans. So you've got an Asian, you've got a Greek, and you've got a Roman. What are the chances of these guys ever finding them, uh, themselves? He would probably eat at... Uh, And drink Bud Light, Budweiser or something. <laughs> what do you call you? He would eat maybe in a middle of the road kind of a restaurant. I just want you to see that some of this is not like weird. We need to see it. Tim Keller uh, does some stuff on this particular passage that I found quite insult insightful many years ago. Uh, basically, the, what I want us to see is the way God goes after people. Because that will help us to go after people in the same way. And it's interesting, it's one gospel, but he goes after these three people in incredibly different ways. Paul, being the Jewish uh, 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 man that he is, uh, he's an apostle, but his uh, modus operandi was to go into these cities and look for a synagogue. There was no synagogue in Philippi. So he went down to the place of prayer with, where he was hoping to meet those Jewish people, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. That was his way he did stuff. He was going to preach the gospel to those who had the revelation. He wanted to fill in the blanks and say, Jesus 
is the Christ. He is your Messiah. And he goes down and uh, uh, to this place of prayer. And there were mainly women gathered there. And uh, the Bible describes Lydia as a person who, who, who was a worshiper of God. That's not code for she's saved. That's code for somehow as an Asian, she was exploring faith uh, in Israel's God. She's a worshiper. She is in the mix. And she's also down at the river. Now, we've got to speculate a little. I, I don't want to exaggerate anything. I just want to say this, that it seems that God goes after Lydia, this fashion executive, who is living with a sense of uh, a, a purpose vacuum. She, you know, if, you, if you're cooking in business, I mean, she is a, a, a dealer in purple dyes. That either, either came from a plant called the Eurasia or a fish in the ocean. And they, somehow there was a combination of extracting this purple dye. It was like liquid gold. And so she, you know, she was rolling. She probably had a private jet and was, okay, just excuse me. I just want you to see just how, how beautiful and accessible these stories are when we, when, we, when we read it like that. She probably was a Gentile person with pagan roots who found that money gives you a lot to live with, but not enough to live for. And uh, uh, as she listened to Paul, she listened with attention. What would Paul be teaching at a Jewish kind of prayer meeting? What kind of stuff? He'd be preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. What would his message be? Probably substitutionary atonement. It's not in the text. I'm speculating. I'm thinking she's getting her questions answered. So God goes after Lydia's mind. And just in case we don't realize this, gentlemen, women in the 21st century have got fantastic minds, and we should dignify that with answering their questions. Can I have a yeah? Thank you for the two of you that are supporting me in this. And they do have a lot of questions. Probably um, um, uh, more hungry for God, too. Let's just move on. <laughs> But she was vulnerable to the message of the gospel in as far as it opened her eyes and her heart, because some of the commentators say uh, the Lord opened her, not just her heart to the message, but her mind to the message. There was a cognitive side for that. And then Keller's commentary on this, he says that uh, there, there's, there are these ways that, uh, that uh, cognitive people essentially are asking the question, prove it to me. Prove it to me. Show me that, this is, that is, this is true. And Paul is doing that in such a beautiful way. And uh, the lights go on for her spiritually. She finds in the gospel the biggest intellectual questions of where have I come from, origins. Why am I here, meaning. Where am I going, destiny. What's right or wrong, morality. All the questions, the big questions, are resolved more beautifully and more wonderfully in this coherent system of truth called the gospel. And the lights go on for her, but not only for her, for her entourage. Uh, that's what the word household means. It does not mean her biological family. It means this household of faith. And suddenly her home becomes a place where Paul and his entourage are invited in, and there's this beautiful sense of lingering in that space, space probably doing some discipling and foundation laying, and, uh, and I'm still scratching my head because when Paul had the vision 
in, the, in Troas from the man of Macedonia, the first person he encounters is not a man, it's a woman. So what's, how do we resolve that mystery? One proposal is that the man of Macedonia is the Lord of the harvest. He's saying, come over here and help us. You see, John Wesley said that with, without God we can do nothing, but without us he does nothing. He, we can do whatever he wants, but he loves to involve us in partnering with him. And so that's one possible explanation. I'm not going to argue for that as a, like a foolproof thing, but it certainly fits my romantic side of reading the scriptures. I love the fact that Jesus is the Lord of the harvest and he's the one who opens up for that message. But then there's this second story of conversion that's remarkable. You see, the cognitive person says, prove it to me, but the intuitive person says, I need to feel it. What I'm trying to, the reason I'm going there with you today is you've got to be careful of being, like we're trying very carefully, is not being a one-dimensional church. So Lydia got the equivalent of an alpha course. But how many of you know you can't go to the slave woman who's bound by demonic powers and say, hey, would you like to do alpha? That's not how God reaches her. God's going after her heart. She needs to be freed. She needs a power encounter in the gospel. She needs to know that while she's being exploited, when you're exploring on the outside and terrorized on the inside, you're pretty vulnerable to a new master. And I just love the story. She's, she is demonized by the so-called Delphi Python spirit. And uh, these dem demonic powers work in the world would give her supernatural insights to reading people's uh, futures. And uh, she was manic. She was crazy. And uh, probably had been sold by her parents into this role. And she makes her, her pimps wealthy through her ability to do this. And they would uh, reward her with regular treats or whatever it is. I love the fact that Paul turns around and goes straight to the root of this thing. And he addresses that demonic power by the authority of the risen Christ. He commands that demon to leave her. And the reason we see that as a conversion moment, we're not going to fight anyone who sees this was just being free from a demon, but I, the fact that she, the, the, her pimps were put out of business, the fact that there was no going back suggests that this life had been occupied by the presence of the risen Lord in, a most remarkable, in the most remarkable way. She's, she's saying, I want to feel it. But the big story I want us to focus on is the story of this great earthquake. How many of you think earthquakes are like brilliant supernatural things that we should pray for? God, shake it up! I want to show you that whilst that might be particularly exciting, I want us to take, a little, I want us to take us a little more north. I want us to say there's actually a bigger supernatural work of the gospel here that... Uh, that is more accessible to us. Because many of us in the room here might not run an Alpha course. Many of us in the room here might not be costing our demons on a regular basis. But you're going to see some stuff here that shows there's a, there's a way to live our lives 
that puts Christ on display in a remarkable and compelling way in the world. <coughs> Lydia says, prove it to me. The slave girl says, I want to feel it. And this third category of conversion with the jailer, he's what Keller calls the concrete relational person. He's saying, show me that it's real. Show me that it works. I want to see something that is real, authentic. Folk, authenticity is such an amazing value in the church because you don't get it in culture. So we have to fight hard for, for this value to have a face of beauty in the way we do church. Okay, are you ready? We've laid the foundation for something that I hope is going to be very encouraging. God goes after this jailer by shocking him out of his indifference. Shocking him out of his indifference. I'm telling you, in the 21st century, in our major cities of the world, some people aren't going to come through emancipation from demonic powers. They're not going to come through alpha courses. They need another working of God in their lives. And folks, these are just three conversions. God's probably got 300 different ways that he can do this. All I'm wanting to do is to stir up our confidence in the fact that uh, uh, God's not backing off from the world. He's identified a leading city in, uh, in, uh, in uh, Macedonia to see people saved and to see a church formed that eventually gets into the soft underbelly of the Roman Empire because if you read Philippians chapter 4, you see Paul sending greetings to all those in Caesar's household, whatever that means, whether it's slaves that have been converted, but it's the story of these original three formed the foundation of a church, and they didn't just get saved and say, that's us, we're going to sing hymns till Jesus comes. It's not the second coming of, the, of, of Jesus, the second coming of the church that we need to be in faith for in our 21st century. And so here you've got this guy who's hardened. He's a calloused guy. I think he's more representative of the kind of culture uh, uh, we live in today. Hard, calloused, cynical, arrogant, and cruel. Because they beat Paul and Silas up, and they say, put him in a, in a prison. They put them in his prison, but this jailer puts them in stocks. Now, don't think in your mind, middle age stocks, feet, hands like this, feet in the bottom, round hole, head through there, and everybody throws tomatoes. That's not the stocks. The stocks here were a, 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 a torture device that would put the guys literally into a split position. I don't imagine that. It's painful, guys. Don't go there. Very painful. Their backs are bleeding from having beaten with rods which would have been nine rods all together and with nine of them, big welts opening up your back, bleeding. And about midnight, Paul and Silas start singing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch. Nashville, here I come. 
night. I'll ask you a question. What kind of people sing songs in the night? What kind of people can sing into the eye of a storm? What kind of people can embrace suffering like a good soldier of the Lord Jesus? What kind of master do they have that they will not yield an inch for the sake of his name? I think the jailer firstly was shocked out of his indifference because he'd never ever seen anything like that. Most people who'd gone through what he did to them were having pity parties, were protesting their innocence. This is another category of wholeness. This is another category of, of how you live out your life from a new center. This, Paul and Silas, represent a new way in the darkness. I want to ask you, do you have songs in the night? Do you still have your gospel song? And are you singing it loudly no matter what happens, no matter what you're going through, no matter how difficult life gets? There is a quality of discipleship that is best measured in this environment. It's not, you don't grow much in a jacuzzi. You, you grow in the flames of persecution and suffering and difficulty. And that's not your address. These are moments. Let's not get weird and funny and say this is where Paul lived all of his life. He did have lots of moments like that. He didn't have all of his life like that. But he'd learned, as he wrote to the, the Philippian church later, he says, I've learned in any and every situation to be content. He says, I've learned the secret of contentment. What's the secret? It's not a bumper sticker on your motor car. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That verse is directly applied to our ability in difficult to do all things through Christ whilst he strengthens us in difficulty. It's not a bumper sticker. It's not a fridge magnet. It's not what you say before you're going to go and write your, your university exam. I can do all things like a, like a formula. No, you can be content whether you pass or fail if you understand what it means to have a song of contentment in your life. Because you understand that contentment is not the product of what you have or don't have. Contentment is not the product of life circumstances aligned to your deepest desires to get ahead in life. Contentment is not a technique. It's not a program. Contentment is the presence of a person who is strengthening you on the inside in the night when you have to sing a song because life is difficult. I wonder if 21st century Sacramento and Cape Town is getting the best version of our one and only lives. And it gets better. These guys are in stocks. They're away from their families. They're away from their community. And they're still singing. And around midnight, our beautiful Negro spiritual friends, the songs they sang, they, 
they have this lovely story I heard years back. That, uh, uh, you know, heaven is God's throne. Earth is his footstool. And as they starting to sing, this music ascends into heaven and God begins to tap his foot on this little planet called earth. And these earthquakes just are released in that particular aim beautifully and pastorally and graciously. The city didn't fall, just the prison doors opened up, everyone's chains falling off, and it's remarkable. Now you've got, to, you've got to imagine with me, what's going on in this prison? You've got to imagine, you've got to ask the question, what, what kept those prisoners there? Bigger miracle than the earthquake? Open prison doors, no chains on your wrists, and nobody goes anywhere. So here's my, here's my theory. As they look at this and they're about to run, Paul booms out down the corridors. Uh, gentlemen, if any of you are thinking I'm making a run for it, I just want you to know that's earthquake number one. The second is coming if you step out of the line. And they stay just where they are. Now, I can't give you a verse for that. I just want to, just want to, I just want to get you thinking a little creatively. The jailer comes running down. He thinks his, his, all his prisoners are gone. He's about to fall on his sword. And Paul cries out, don't do this. All the prisoners are here. You're okay. Look, look at the irony. Look a little, a little bit, a little, just a, a few verses prior to this. Their lives, Paul and Silas' lives, are in this jailer's hands. It's a remarkable thing in the gospel of grace. Sometimes God puts people who've been unkind and ungracious to us, and he puts them in our hands. I want to ask you, do you sing songs in the night, and do you have a heart of kindness toward people who are your enemies, or are you criticizing? You see, they turned the world upside down in the first century because they outthought, brilliant, yay, we outthink, but they also outloved. And then you see this played out in this story. Don't take your life. We are all here. You're okay. Because what was at stake is that guy would lose, not his job, he would use his, lose his life if those prisoners escaped. I think the kind of world that we're going to do gospel ministry in is a world that needs to hear our songs, that we're keeping our souls gloriously happy in God. George Mueller, the, the guy who did all those uh, uh, orphanages in the UK, never asked for a cent and just millions of pounds would. And he said, my number one duty is to keep my soul happy in the Lord. In other words, keep your song alive. And then people with a song are people who know how to be kind because they are so mesmerized and stunned by the reality that God could save them. And if God could save them, he could save absolutely anyone. Folk, we're not better than anyone. We are rescued sinners by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. So on an airplane some time back and we were flying on our way to Australia and uh, there was a there's there's me, uh, Sue, and this lady, who's just loud, irritating. You know when you get on an airplane and you sit down, and you think, oh, this is going to be fantastic. I'm just going to rest and relax 
and there's ha 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 all the time. And then she asked, and what do you do? Oh my dear, here we go. Sue says, oh, my husband and I were involved in church leadership. Oh, I used to believe in all that stuff. I can't believe the piano. Ha, 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 And I'm listening to the argument. Sue's trying to be kind and gentle and answer questions, and I'm getting irritated. I've got my intellectual sheriff badge on. Um, my, my inner lawyer has been activated. I'm after all her stuff. And I'm going after, I'm the apostolic hound dog, uh, the, or the apologetic hound dog. I want to answer all her questions and tell her how wrong she is and how right I am. And, and then something happened that just changed everything. This obnoxious, irritating woman reached out across my wife and knocked her wine all over Sue. My wife knocked the wine. And I'm thinking, oh my dear, what have we got here? My wife like an absolute princess. says, oh, don't worry, it's just wine. But I, I mean, I don't worry about the clothes, but the wine. <laughs> anyway. A, a short, make, it, make it short. Um, a lady comes down, the, one of the air hostesses comes and that's, that's uh, I'm so sorry about that. She comes from first class and gives all of us pajamas, packs with all their uh, top uh, toiletries, uh, and, and she gets one, and she says to Sue, I can't believe I did that to you. And then I get all these goodies. Do you want to know how lovely that Sue was able to press home the claims of the gospel to that woman. She swapped email addresses, telephone. That's the horrible thing about being married to a woman like Sue. We get on an airplane, I just want to dial out. Sue's thinking, oh yeah, what's going to happen? And I saw they've given me, a, upgraded me to a first-class ticket to LA later today. And I'm thinking, it's not to relax. It's probably because God's got a business guy that he wants me to talk to there. And I'm having to, Sue's going to ask me, what did you do? Who did you talk to? I don't need the Holy Spirit. I've got Sue. <laughs> anyway. We've got a woman in our church a little while back. Her name is Mary Stewart. She's a comedian, a top professional comedian in South Africa. She came to faith. She's a part of our church. She did a stand-up uh, comedy routine on, on my life, on my 60th birthday. I know you're all thinking, how could you be 60? You look so young and fresh. Thank you for that. But I am you know, slightly over 60. It's called 64. But at my 60th, she did this thing. She wrote the script, everything. But Mary Stewart's story of coming to faith is remarkable. She goes to her, before her BC days, she goes to see a, a, her new age guru. And she just has no peace. Her life is in turmoil. She says to this new age uh, guru, who she's been seeing for years, uh, won't you just uh, do a reading for me, find out what you think ought to happen. I'm, I, I just don't have peace. She comes back to her and she says, I don't know if this is going to make any sense to you. These are non-Christians. She says, but as I have been meditating... These words have come to me. Jesus is looking for you. She goes away, ignores it, comes back. The lady says to her, I just want you to know again, Jesus is looking for you. She ends up visiting our church. She ends up having conversations with people. The next minute she's saved. She's baptized. I want to say to you, don't put it beyond God 
to be able to get behind the defenses of people who protesting, who got all their excuses, all their ducks in a row. She became a radical Christian and uh, has been responsible for sharing her faith all over South Africa. It's a remarkable story. So let me come into land, and then if there are any people who need prayer or just uh, some, some sense of wanting to seal this thing, I, I, you, I just hear it again. I want God to restore our confidence in the gospel's power. I'm trusting God to restore our ambition for the gospel's reach. And I'm asking and I've been praying that God would restore our joy in the gospel's blessings. We need all of that. We don't need a shallow gospel. We need a robust gospel. We need a strong, full, and rich gospel. All three of these lives, an Asian, a Greek, and a Roman, hear the same message about being saved by one person, Jesus Christ. And yet they walk a different journey into that. God looks over this great city of Sacramento. I just want to say to you, he's not run out of ideas. When you go to work tomorrow or in whatever sphere of life or vocation or, uh, you know, whatever you do, God has not run out of ideas. And here's the reality. All of us are slaves. All of us are slaves. You see, Lydia probably was a slave to the blessings of materialism. It didn't, it didn't do it for her. And she starts to get spiritually hungry. And I think God has a way of disappointing people. We need to pray for God to disappoint people who, 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 you know, spend their lives climbing a ladder and find out too late in life that it's against the wrong wall. The slave woman was a, yeah, the slave girl was a slave to new age demonic powers. What was the jailer a slave to? Reputation. And the guy says, I, I'd rather die than have to face the shame of losing all my prisoners. Then what's his idol? What's his functional idol? It's reputation. I, what people think about me matters. That's his functional savior. If I could just be in everybody's good books, then I'm doing really, really well. And so let's land this thing. And you and I might be slaves in other ways, and through the gospel, God is continuing freeing, freeing us in his work of sanctification in our lives, he's bringing us uh, to align to the freedom that Christ gives and we can say no to that other stuff. So let me say in conclusion, I want you to notice the gospel is a power. It's a power for all people, in all places, in all classes, in all cultures, gospel is such a power that we should never, ever say, so-and-so will never, ever become a Christ follower. If God can reach a person through a new age guru, God has ways to reach kind of people. I'm not trying to make her the, the, the textbook case. Secondly, the gospel is the most powerful force to bring different people together. I was on the phone to Sue this morning uh, just to check in and see how she's doing. She'd just come back from our one, one uh, congregation meeting, and she said, I'm so excited. I went into this 
uh, our, of, it's our major campus, and uh, uh, she went into a place called Kids Zone where all the kids were. She says, I've never in my life seen so many different Chinese, colored, black, Asian, uh, white, all these kids together. They're totally ignorant of the stuff that we grew up with as adults. They're just getting on with it in this new reality of, of, of the magnetic field of the gospel. Jewish men grew up learning to say the prayer, God, I thank you that I was never born a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Wow. <laughs> Lydia, <laughs> the slave girl, and the Roman jailer. Isn't that remarkable? It's almost like God says, dare me, because I am not going to take culture's no for the good news of my son. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. The raw material that God uses for building his church and moving his kingdom forward is Romans 5 and verse 4 and, 4 and verse 5. It says God justifies the wicked. That's the raw material that God uses. We've got to be careful of our moralistic lens and thinking, oh boy, I wish those, those people would learn to, to, you know, to behave like we do. We, we're good, good Christians. We don't do that stuff. No, no. We're not out to, to change people's behavior. We're out to change what they believe. Belief must change behavior and ultimately bring people into belonging. Then you, need, you and I need to audit our lives and say, well, when we came to faith, which of those three potentially? Or is there another way? And we need to keep that story alive. It'll feed your confidence. So if you want to reach others for Christ, check out your own fears, check out your own idols, check out your own prejudices. We just did a talk on the Wednesday night before I flew out on the Thursday with the missional core of a new church plant in Common Ground. And I said this to them. Use your business life connections like Lydia. Grow your relational range to start to see, as it were, your dining room table filled with people that are different. Tell you what you don't need. You don't need people more like you. It's called a ghetto. It's called a cul-de-sac. We need to start building relationships across class, across culture, across color, across vocation. We need to build relationships. Thirdly, open your eyes and heart to spiritually curious people around you. Paul was doing his stuff, doing his stuff, and he's hearing this voice in the background. Oh, these men are servants of the Most High, proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She's curious. He does, he's irritated maybe a little bit. But he has to discern, oh, wow, God's opening a door here for gospel emancipation. I was in, the, in Holland some time back and on the edge of one of the canals, one square meter little patch, I saw a crow, a duck, and a dove. Have you ever seen anything like that? I hadn't seen it. First time I saw it then, and I haven't seen it since. A duck, a crow, which usually hangs out in rubbish, rubbish dumps. A duck usually is in the water. And the, this dove, all in one square meter. I looked at this for a good 10, 15 minutes. Oh, this is remarkable. And then I saw 
somebody left a bag of seed there. Folk, what we're eating off, what we're feasting on, is the power of the gospel. When we broke bread this morning, the beauty of the communion table is different people come together through the one and save, same Jesus Christ, and we are feeding and feasting off the life of the Son of God. We're being sustained by Him in a remarkable way. That church went on to be a truly remarkable church. It's the church that commentators say received the least criticism. You want to know how a church does well when, when the church belongs to the mission. They're not trying to find a mission for their church. When we start to say mission is why we exist. I know that can be an idolatrous thing. People are all about mission and all this vocab, mission all this, mission all that. I just want to say to you, you'll never be more fully alive as a Christ follower if we rediscover the beauty and the wonder of standing shoulder to shoulder and sharing our faith in the away match. You see, today is our home game. When we worship together, it's home game. We're with our fans and friends and followers. We sing our war cries together. It's, uh, excuse me, just being a, a, little, a little, I just want you to think about this. It's so lovely to be together. And we go home and we say, wasn't that just lovely? This connects to that. This is what we commission from, this vibrant, animated expression. You guys have an amazing church. I want to say to you, without flattering you in any way, the presence of Jesus Christ is in this church. I sat here and I thought, Lord, my heart is so tender toward you. My love for you, my affection grows, and I'm thinking, I, I just wish we were closer, that we could do life together and learn from each other and move forward. It was fantastic. It would be fantastic. And I want to stick my neck out. I say, your best years are ahead. It's not does the church have a future, it's does the future have a church and what kind of church is that? And we sing, it's the original kind of church where the gospel is the fountainhead doctrine of all that we do. It informs the way we think, it forms how we do mission and it transforms our lives while we're doing it all and we're not better than anybody. We stand shoulder to shoulder, fused together first to Christ and then to each other in this unstoppable mission of bringing grace to the world. I just want to say to you, people have accused me of, of just being like a, an unrealistic optimist. Well, guys, you're stuck with me because I am not surrendering a confidence in the gospel's power. When I read the book of Acts, there is a, it's only in the West that people are all cynical and despairing. In Africa, people are coming to faith in their hundreds, in their thousands, in China, in their millions, in South America, all over the place. It's only in the West where we're getting all cynical and self-doubting. Let the cynics scoff and the skeptics scorn. We're going to serve Jesus together, friends. We're believing for the new and better day under the new and better David. And everybody said, Amen. Was that helpful? A little bit. Can I come back? Maybe. As you can see, I hope you can feel my affection for you in the gospel. But uh, more than that, I'm going to be praying and I want to be in touch with uh, Matt and Shannon and want to really keep our uh, scarping. One of my desires is that somehow they'd be able to get to come hang with us in South Africa and uh, just to expose them to like peer-level relationships. We, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the old guy on our team. We, we, I'm, I'm the Rick. 
<laughs> in common ground. But not as good looking as Rick. <laughs> but the average age of our guys in uh, on leading our congregations is about 38 or 39. And when we started this journey, just think about it, 23 years ago, that would make... We, I worked it out. They, they were about 17 when we said yes to Christ in this new way. That was the average age. They weren't all in our church. Some of them weren't even saved. And then down the road, we look at each other, and we, we, we just think it's such, so neat and so precious and so wonderful that God joined us together. Folk, you are not joined together for Sunday home game. You joined together for 24-7 interactive relationship with God and with the culture into which he commissions us. And he sows the son of the, 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 Jesus is the sower in the parable of the tares and the wheat. He sows the sons and daughters of the kingdom into the world, not into the church. I want to ask you, if the son of man sows you and I, do you think he's confident? You know why I've got confidence in the gospel's power? Because he's sowing us, he's put his spirit on us, and he's wanting to blast us out of the cynicism of our age and say, we are not backing that. Is that helpful? God, thank you for my, my friends. Thank you for this absolute amazing privilege to, to share your word. Lord, even in this room, we're all so different. And we just pause a moment to say thank you for the reality in our personal lives of scandalous grace. We pray for our friends among us who are still possibly journeying to understand that and receive that, I just want to pray, Lord, that uh, you would be powerfully at work yes. in all of our lives. Lord, none of us have arrived uh, in any level of perfection. We're still a work in progress, but we want to thank you for your finished work in our lives that takes rebels and makes them friends, that makes orphans and makes them sons and daughters of your kingdom. Lord, what you do is finished, permanent, and beautiful. We're still pretty much needing you to keep working in our hearts and in our lives for your glory. We invite your presence, Holy Spirit. Invite your presence. I want to pray for the future of Capital City Church. I want to pray, Lord, that you would, in your power, in your sovereignty, in your wisdom, that you would position this community for that next uh, season of what you want to do. Amen. Won't you make your will clear? Won't you give uh, a sense of renewed ideas? Help us to be a creative minority in a, in a culture, but still with backbone, with strength, and with joy. <coughs> just want to pray for some of you who've lost your song. I feel the Holy Spirit just wants to say to you, your song is not the product of what you can generate, it's the song that comes from the grace of God that you receive. Your heart is stirred by noble themes that come from the gospel that informs your song. It's not you just trying to get a voice to make a noise, it's the gospel of grace that gives you a song. I just feel like God wants to, you to rediscover the be beauty and the wonder once your all gates freshly open to just how beautiful this message is. Lord, thank you that you're not looking for stunning people. You're looking for stunned people. You're not looking for amazing people. You're looking for amazed people. God, hear our prayer as we yield our hearts and our lives to you and say, Lord, work deeply in us. 
restore our joy in the blessings as well. And uh, forgive us when, when we've so easily yielded our confidence in your sufficiency, your power to do amazing things. For your glory, for your namesake, everybody said amen. Thank you, guys. What a joy.